seated. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, sometimes I think it's important on the front end of a message just to give you key deliverables to keep you hooked and paying attention and so forth. So I'm going to give some promises on the front end of things I'm hoping to deliver to you today. And the first one is, I think by the end of this message, you'll have a pretty good understanding of what the book of Deuteronomy is about. You'll have a pretty good understanding of what the book of Hebrews is about. Um, so that's good. You'll have a pretty good sense of the biblical dynamic, what the Bible thinks of in terms of followers and leaders. So you'll have a kind of pretty good biblical sense of biblical leadership, biblical followership. You also probably have uh, a newfound respect for the power that fear has in constricting your future and limiting your life, so forth. See that today. There'll be a lot of different levels going on today in the message, but we're starting out in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and continuing our discussion about biblical covenantal theology. And last week we said that there's this structure that shows up over and over again all throughout the text, all throughout the scriptures. And that structure is, has been enumerated by at least one guy as theos, um, T meaning transcendent and eminence, the transcendence and eminence of God. The H meaning the hierarchy that God places within a covenant structure. So there's always some kind of mediator within a covenant. The Noahic covenant obviously has Noah. You've got Abraham. You've got David. God places this mediator, this hierarchical structure above, below him. And then you've got the E that stands for ethics. It's like, okay, if God's transcendent and eminent, that is to say if God's holy, and he's, he's perfect, but also perfectly concerned about our righteousness or sin. And he's placed these leaders, this hierarchical structure, these mediators in our lives. How should we live? That's E, ethics. And then we get to, well, what happens if I obey or what happens if I disobey? And that's O for oaths. It's where God discloses these are the consequences for obedience or disobedience. Sometimes those are called sanctions. And then the S in this outline is succession, which is just sort of like, here's how the future unfolds if you obey or if you disobey. So we said that there was these five questions that basically, this is last week, these five questions that basically all institutions have to have answers for, that all humans have to have answers for. And the first one is, who's in charge here? The second one is, who do I report to? The third one is, what are the rules? The next one is, what do I get for obeying or disobeying the rules? And the last one is, what's the future of this organization? And those correspond generally to this covenant structure we see all throughout Scripture. Now, today we're going to talk about the H in that covenant structure, and we'll return back to discussing covenant theology around this time next year. But we wanted to at least cover some of the ideas behind covenant theology before we jump into our next sermon series, which is over uh, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning next week. So today we're going to talk about hierarchy. And the basic thing I think that's helpful to ask on the front, is, front end is, why did God create hierarchy? Why did he put people in charge of things? It seems to cause a lot of trouble. Right? It, it seems to cause a lot of trouble. I started thinking about how to categorize the problems that come because of hierarchy, and I thought of two basic problems with four kind of subsets, and that would be this, leaders who underlead and leaders who overlead. Okay? Wimpy leaders and tyrannical leaders, let's say. So there's a lot of problems that come out of that, right? Leaders who don't lead like they should, 
Uh, they don't lead enough, and then leaders who lead well beyond what God has actually called them to lead. So you can think of wimps and tyrants or something like that. And then on the follower side, there's two problems also. Followers who are rebellious and don't lead, don't follow. And then followers who basically worship the leader. They overfollow, right? So you've got sort of under and over on both sides. There's underperformance of leaders, overperformance of leaders, underperformance of followers, overperformance of followers. And I did this all on a chart, and it doesn't really matter, and it's not really relevant to the text. But just so you know, like I started charting out, like, okay, what would it look like in an environment where the leader is overleading, he's being more than he should be, and um, the followers are overfollowing, they're basically worshiping the leader. It's like, well, that's a cult. <laughs> anyway, you could chart all these sorts of things out, and, and it's kind of interesting. And you've probably been in situations where something seemed to skew, and it might have been because these two dynamics were off. Um, Angela and I went to a restaurant maybe two weeks ago, kind of late at night, and we just got the vibe instantly that the leaders were not leading and the followers were not following. <laughs> like, we just got this vibe as we were sat down. I feel like we were even sat reluctantly, if that makes sense. If you've ever been to a restaurant like that, you know, and we're sitting there talking and I'm like, you know, I think we're about to pay for a crappy night. <laughs> Do you want to bail? And she's like, yeah. So we jumped up and, and, and ran before we had ordered anything. You wish in that case that the restaurant had had higher leadership, more active leadership, and more active followership. You even maybe would prefer that it would be kind of cult-like, which I was thinking, if there's one restaurant that's cult-like, it's which one? Chick-fil-A, boom, exactly right. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so hierarchies cause problems. There are leaders pro leadership problems. There are follower problems. Why does God create hierarchy? Why does he put people in charge of things and then tell other people to submit to those people? That's a good question to ask. It's a first principle kind of question to ask. Well, let's look at our text here. There's something I think you'll find very interesting about Deuteronomy 32 and 33 taken as a whole. In chapter 32, we have Moses talking to man about God. Moses speaking on behalf of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb or herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So what is happening here and throughout most of chapter 32 is Moses telling the people about God. He's talking to people on behalf of God. And then in the next chapter, Moses reverses the order of his speech. He's still speaking but look what, he ha look what happens in the next chapter, in chapter 33. Look at verse 7, for instance. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him in to his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. Look at verse 11. 
Bless, O Lord, his substance. This is Moses praying for Levi. Chapter 33 is Moses praying for all of the tribes, blessing them. His blessing to Levi is one of the longest and includes this in chapter, in verse 11. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries. What a great prayer. Crush the loins of his adversaries. And, and that means cut him off. Let him, let him not reproduce, right? That's, that's the idea there. Uh, crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they may not rise again. So in chapter 33, we have, 32, we have Moses talking to people on behalf of God. And then in chapter 33, what do we have? We have Moses talking to God on behalf of people. So in biblical parlance, in biblical language, we call that mediation. We see Moses being a mediator. He is serving one role that has two main functions, to talk to the people on behalf of God, which is what we see him doing in 32, and then to talk to God on behalf of the people, which is what we see him doing in chapter 33. Now, why does God do these sorts of things? Why does God create structures? Why does God have leaders? Why does God have mediators? I can only, I'm going to give you one answer today. There are many other possible things to think about, but one reason we could say is that God creates hierarchy and mediators because he has always planned to show himself through Jesus Christ. So you have to remember that all of history is God's providential preparation to show the world his greatest treasure, which is himself and his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we ask, why does God do something? One of the answers is always, in some respect, and we'd have to flesh out the details, is to showcase Jesus Christ, whose name is above all names and, who, and, and, and every knee will bow at, at, at the name of Jesus Christ, Right? So why would God create structure, hierarchy, leaders, mediators? Well, in part because it was always God's plan to show the world himself through Jesus Christ, whom Hebrews says is the exact representation of his nature. And so the book of Hebrews says that in many times, in many ways, God has spoken to the people through prophets and so on and so forth, but now he is speaking through his son which shows us that one of the reasons God creates structure and hierarchies and leaders and followers is because he wanted to prepare us to think of Jesus as the leader, which he is. And of course, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant than Moses. The covenant of Moses has passed. The covenant of Jesus remains and cannot pass. And Jesus does exactly what we see Moses doing, only much more so. Jesus speaks to us on behalf of God. He shows us the Father, and then he speaks to God on behalf of us. Hebrews says he always makes intercession for us, or he always lives to make intercession for us. So one reason, among probably others, but probably the, the number one reason, the ultimate reason, that God creates structure, mediator, mediators, hierarchy, and so on and so forth is it was always his intention to reveal himself to the world along similar structural lines. Through Jesus, the prophet, the priest, the king, the leader, the king of kings, right? He's, he's the top of all the hierarchies. 
And it was his intention, God's intention, to orchestrate history in such a way as to prepare human beings and our feeble minds for the category. Now this brings up a second reason that we could just touch upon for why hierarchies are necessary. The first point of this covenant structure is, is that God is transcendent. He's huge. He's big. He's so far above us. I thought carefully and prayerfully about the sentence. I think I'm okay. I don't think I'm in lightning bolt danger here. But, but, but it was the kind of thing that made me, made me think carefully before I said it. But here goes. I think it is right to say that we are more like bacteria than God in most ways. That, that the difference between us and bacteria is less than the difference between us and God. And I mean that when I talk about God's power, his transcendent qualities, that even though we were created in the image of God, which is why this has some hesitation here, the difference in nature, in power, in substance is probably greater between us and God than us and bacteria. That is just to say, one way of helping you understand how much higher God is than us. Isaiah 55, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So God is really, really, really above us. But, that's his transcendence, but he desires to be among us. That's his eminence. It's like, okay, how do you do that? How can God communicate with us if he's so much higher than us? And how can he be with us? Well, again, this, this almost necessitates, I think it does necessitate a mediator. It necessitates someone coming in between this incredible gulf, which is, of course, what we see in Jesus, but it's also the role of all of God's ordained leaders. It's like, what does a husband do? A husband thinks deeply about God. That's what a husband does. A husband invests his brain and his heart and his soul into diving into the depths of God so that he can bring God to his wife and he can bring his wife to God. A husband is an expert of two things, his wife and God. That's his mediatorial role. And you could talk about what does a parent do? It's the same thing. What does a pastor do? Same thing, right? What does a pastor do? pastor thinks deeply about God to bring God to the people. And a pastor thinks deeply about the people to bring them to God in prayer. And we see, in fact, when deacons are instituted in the book of Acts, the apostles' main concern is, is that this office would be brought in in order to protect what for the pastor, for the, for the apostle that they may be much in study and much in prayer. It's a mediatorial function. So why hierarchy? Mostly to show us Christ, but also God's basic nature requires some translation work. And in fact, the text I read as some of you were coming in this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, or yeah, Hebrews chapter 12, refers to this moment when the people of God saw the mountain of the Lord and the fiery tempest and the gloom and the scariness and the smoke and so on. And they said to Moses, we don't want to talk to God anymore. You talk to God for us. 
Again, another, another kind of concept tied into what a mediator is. So that's one question that we might have at least some of an answer to, a better answer than we did at the beginning. But the next one I think is also extremely important, and that is what happens when we rebel against God-given leadership? What happens when we rebel against God-given leadership? Well, look back at verse 4, and seven, four through 7 in chapter 32. Moses says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Put your finger, if you would, if you've got your Bibles open to on, on verse 7. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. Some of us are uh, more uncomfortable with awkwardness than others, and when I read this verse, I have this, this lump in my stomach. This phrase... Ask your father. Ask your elder. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why that sends my awkward alarms off high key. Deuteronomy, the word, means second law. Uh, it's the compound of two Greek words, one for second and one for law. And it just refers to Moses giving the law again. Why would he need to give it again? Well, almost 40 years earlier... God said the following to his people, and now I'm in Numbers chapter 14, verse 28. So almost 40 years to the date when Moses says, ask your fathers. 40 years before that, God said this. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithfulness, faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. That's probably good enough. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, when Moses says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, and he will show you. Most people there would have to go to a gravesite to ask their father. Why is Deuteronomy the second giving of the law? Because over a million people under the age over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness. And this new generation had no fathers or grandfathers for the most part. Understand what I'm saying here? I'm saying that Deuteronomy happens 40 years after 
as a million people have dropped dead. There's an old myth. I don't think this is true. It's an old Jewish myth that on the night of Yom Kippur every year for 40 years, all of those people who were over the age of 20 when God issued this decree would dig a shallow grave and sleep in it that night because they knew that, it's some, that, that in the morning at least 12,000 of them would be dead. And so that every night, all of the Jews over 20 would sleep in a grave every night of Yom Kippur because they knew that that night, 1,000, 2,000, perhaps 12,000 of them would be dead. So over the last 40 years, everyone who was over the age of 20 who rejected out of fear God's promise that they could occupy and would occupy the promised land, over the next 40 years, they all died. And so when Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 7, ask your fathers, it's highly, highly rhetorical. Ask your fathers because they're dead. And why are they dead? Why are they dead? What was their crime? Well, when God talks about it, their crime was breaking faith with him, right? But when the story is simply reporting the facts, when you simply read the story, that's not what you see. What you see over and over again is these people who had to die in the wilderness grumbling against their leader. Now, God rightly interprets that as grumbling against him. He, after all, placed this leader in this position. But the reality is the reason why a million people died in the wilderness is because they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and grumbled and quarreled and quarreled and quarreled with their leader. The beginning of Numbers 14, after the report of the promised land is given, and they choose to believe the evil report of the ten spies over the faithful report of Joshua and Caleb. They say, it says in, in verse 1 of chapter 14 in Numbers, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. It's always about the kids. It's all for the children. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is why God sentenced them to die in the wilderness. They grumbled against their mediator. The word grumble appears 21 times in the Pentateuch, and it's almost always directed toward Moses and Aaron. The word quarrel appears some 15 times or so, and it's almost always directed toward Moses and Aaron. The basic reason why these people had their future cut off was they could not follow the person God had placed in their lives to follow. And the reason why we don't hear more sermons about this, by the way, it's because you basically need a pastor in kamikaze stage of ministry to preach it, right? Like you basically have to have, because this is the wickedness of the human heart. You hear this and you think, what's his agenda? Instead of asking, what's my problem? Right? So, 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 the, so the, we don't hear these things very often because 
because this is hard for pastors to say and walk out of the room and not expect more grumbling to result. But it is an act of love because the truth is, is that your future is significantly determined by your capacity to deal faithfully with God-given authority. There's a deep, deep principle behind what we saw in Ephesians 6 last week that called children to honor their fathers. And it said, it's the first command with a promise. And the command is so that it may go well with you and live long in the land. Choosing the antithetical life, which is what we talked about two weeks ago, it will not go well with you. You will not live well in the land, long in the land. Choosing the suspicious, rebellious life toward God's leaders, it will not go well with you. You will not live long in the land. And telling you that is an act of love. It, it, it genuinely is. It, especially considering the kinds of suspicions that saying that these days will arouse. It's genuinely not something you'll hear very often, but this is what we see in God's word. And another thing we could say is that when you do a more intensive study of the cause of their grumbling and the cause of their complaining, you'll find one thing mostly at work. There are a couple times where you'll see envy or covetousness of the position. But for the most part, the number one cause of the grumbling is fear. They are afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid they're not being led well. They're afraid of starving to death. They're afraid of dying of thirst. They're afraid of going into the land and contending against giants. And so almost all of the grumbling and complaining is because they're afraid. And we can definitely say that it is especially hard to lead a fearful people. And it is especially easy to manipulate a fearful people. And so one of the tragedies of being a person sort of living out of your fear is you will not respond well to open, open-handed, this is what I'm doing, leadership. And you'll keep walking into manipulative situations where the person just won't be up front and say, hey, this is how I'm going to lead you. And this is like, we've seen this in, in, in marriages, in church preferences, and so on and so forth. Like it's, if you live out of fear, you open yourself up to being manipulated and you close yourself off to being led. So in the last point, we said, well, God did this whole hierarchy thing to make much of Christ. Well, again, it would be impossible not to see Christ in this very issue. And this is what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is basically warning a group of Jews who have become fearful. They're tempted to turn back and embrace the law because things are getting hard in their new identity in Christ. And so the book of Hebrews is written to these Christians to say, hey, you can't say no to Christ and enter into the promised land. Those who rejected Moses, God said, God swore in his wrath, they will not enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, how then will we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation in Christ. And so this is why at the beginning I said, you're going to see the point of Hebrews, the point of Deuteronomy, both, both places in this message. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. A little Bible nerd moment, just a quick aside. Jesus is both the mediator of the covenant and he is the promised land. He is the guide, the leader to get us to the inheritance, and he is the inheritance. He is our rest. So first point, why hierarchy? Well, to make much of Christ. Second point, what happens when you reject it? Well, all sorts of bad things happen, but just don't reject godly authority, but definitely don't reject Christ. Third thing, third point, God is really hard on his mediators. This is something that's very important to remember. God is really hard. He has high standards for his mediators. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33, right? And I told you the basic structure. It's totally right. Like the first part, chapter 32, is Moses speaking to man on behalf of God. Chapter 33 is Moses blessing the nations by praying for them, speaking to God on behalf of man. Something happens, though, Right in the middle, those of you that are visual thinkers, I think you're going to like this. Your brains are going to fire a little bit here. Right in the middle of these two functions, something happens. And that is Moses is sentenced to death. Look at verse 48, chapter 32. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die. And die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Or, and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. It's like one of the questions about fear is why are we so afraid of following leaders? Why are we so afraid of trusting leaders? And the answer is, well, they could be fake. They could be lying. They could be, it's like, yeah, and God, God's got this. God's got this. 
and you can't you can't outthink God. You can't outstructure. You can't create a mechanism that replaces trusting him. God's got this. Friends, it, it is impossible as someone who has been on both ends of the hierarchy, it is impossible to submit to our God-appointed leaders unless we believe that God governs and polices his own with utmost diligence. And here we see that God is dealing harshly with Moses for something that the people did not even care about. This will tell you the state of the people. Hey, as long as the water flows, I don't care how. What do I mean by that? Well, God is saying to Moses, you're not going to get into the promised land because you dealt unfaithfully with me at Meribah. What, is, what happened at Meribah? Well, God told the people were complaining. Moses had a temper. He, he, he threw down the first tablets when he saw them worshiping the golden calf. Like Moses had a temper and uh, caused him, basically caused him trouble all the way through, including here. He... He was provoked by the people. He says that. That's his his account. They're complaining against him. They're quarreling against him. He goes to God. It's a typical pattern. What are we going to do? Very often, God says, well, just destroy them. Moses is like, please don't. Good mediator. What are we going to do? God says, speak to the rock. Water will come out. And this is a lot of water because we're we're talking about watering a million-plus people. Speak to the rock, rock will crack, water will come out. Moses is on his last nerve. And he goes up to the rock and he strikes it instead of speaking to it. Now, the people being who they are, are not concerned about Moses' holiness before the Lord. All they want is water. And so there is indeed a whole number of leaders in the world today who are not holy before the Lord, but producing what the people want and their day shall come. But really, that's true of me and everybody else. I have, there is no such thing as rising above Moses in certain human sense. I'm not Moses. Moses is a better leader than me. And so God is especially, you need to understand this. God doesn't take his eye off his leaders. His eye on his leader is doubled down. And he tells Moses that day, you're not getting in. Go up on the mountain and die. You can see where I'm taking them, but you can't go. Okay, are we seeing Christ right now? Christ suspended on a cross, hung between heaven and earth, on a hill, as the mediator, dealing with man on behalf of God, dealing with God on behalf of man, Christ on a hill, sentenced to die. And the death he died was far more gruesome than Moses. Moses had a relatively pleasant death, I think. The death of Christ, not so much. 
Moses died because he sinned. Jesus died for sin. In between these two functions of dealing with man on behalf of God and dealing with God on behalf of man, Jesus is the mediator, the great fulfillment of the great, unending, ultimate, perfect, total covenant. Moses died as a sinner. Jesus died for sins and then rose. Rose to lead the path into the promised land so that all who join Jesus on that hill and say, Jesus, you did not deserve what you got. You got what I deserved. I want you to be my mediator. I want you, Jesus, I want you to be my mediator. I want you to speak to me on behalf of God, and I want you to speak to God on behalf of me. I want you to be my righteousness. I want you to be my leader. I want to trust in you. And Jesus, because he did not die as a sinner, but rather died as for sin, enters the promised land and makes and prepares a place for you. And so he's able to tell that thief on that day who was on the hill with him, today you'll be with me in the promised land. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So what kind of application can we make of all of this? Well, the first one is just worship God. I mean, one of the most obvious applications here is to worship God for his inscrutable wisdom. It is incredible to see the foreshadow and the substance spanning thousands of years. It's incredible to see the cohesion between Moses and Deuteronomy and Christ and Golgotha. It's incredible to see the cohesiveness between Deuteronomy and Hebrews. So one of the things to do is to just praise God and to join Moses. Like he said in chapter 32, I will proclaim in the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Another point of application would be to just walk carefully. If you want to really quickly just understand what the Psalms, what's happening in the Psalms, when you read those passages where David's praying for guys to, you know, get squished into tiny little pieces and turned into, you know, when David's really praying these really hard things on people, these imprecatory prayers, what they call them, what's going on there? Why, how can David do that? How can he be so violent toward people? Here's, here's the thing you need to understand about David that will extremely be edifying and also instructive in other ways. David believed very strongly in the doctrine of election. What I mean by that is, is he said in his heart, basically from day one when he was a nobody, if God puts a leader in place, I would be very careful about striking, he would say, striking God's anointed. So all throughout David's difficulties with Saul, where he's fleeing this king who is obviously manifestly problematic, you know, David's refuses to take his life. David refuses to cast out, to strike out at him. Why? 
Because in David's eyes, if you stand against someone who is God's leader, you could be standing against God, and he doesn't want to take that chance. So David believes really strongly in this doctrine of election, that when God chooses someone, we should be very careful. You know, what Paul says in Romans 8, who can bring a charge against God's elect is him who justifies. So then when David becomes king, solely because God decided it, that's the nice thing about being submissive is when you do ascend into the hierarchy, you know it wasn't you, it was God. When, you don't, when you're not Machiavelli and you know, twisting and, and unsubmissive secretly and so forth, if you just trust God and, and obey your leaders and one day you're at the top of the hierarchy, you know you got there not because of your own Machiavellian uh, twistings, but because God put you there. And so David now is at the top of the hierarchy and now he looks at people who oppose him with the same indignation he would have looked at himself if he had struck out at Saul. Because for him, the math is simple. If God put the person there, even if there's a chance God put the person there, then to oppose that person is to oppose God. And that's the message we get. One of the key things that the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy do for us is it shows us the great danger of grumbling against our leaders. And the soul toxifying, the soul poisoning effect that can have over time. Children, do not do this towards your parents. Do not do this. You will not do it out loud when they're bigger than you, but you'll do it in your heart. I have a concern for my own heart toward my own parents I haven't lived in their house forever. But people that are my age, you know, it's possible for you to develop a grumbling heart, an, a dishonoring heart towards your parents. And you kind of think, well, you know, what, what's wrong with that? It's like, don't play around with devilish insubordination, no matter what it tastes like when it first goes down. Always spit it out. The second you notice it's in there, get, out, get it out of there. Don't grumble against your parents. Wives, don't grumble against your husbands. Don't do it. I said at the beginning, I could kind of predict your future with, the, with what I've learned in this text. And what I meant by that is, is your attitude toward authority right now is essentially predicting your future. It's not only predicting your future, but if you have kids, it's sort of predicting theirs too. But that's another thing. So do not sow insubordination. You will reap it everywhere. Sow submission as much as possible. Number three, another point of application. Adopt a biblical, which is to say more nuanced view of leaders and followers. So if you listen to the world today, right now, if you paused it and just said, what's the, what's the general view of leaders and followers right now? It would be that leaders are almost always the problem and that the specific kind of leader that's almost always the problem is the one who oversteps. So we, we are in a cultural moment where we think leaders are always the problem and the leaders that are the, always the problem are those that overstep their bounds. But the Bible has always got these four categories working all the time. Sometimes the problem is wimpy leaders, sometimes the problem is tyrannical leaders, and sometimes the problem isn't leaders at all, it's the followers. And the biggest train wreck, one of the biggest spiritual train wrecks in all of the Bible is this million people dead in the wilderness over 40 years. And that was a follower problem. 
not a leader problem. I'm not arguing that in the Bible, the leaders are always the right, and the, and the leaders are always in the right, and the followers are always in the wrong. No, what I'm saying is, is it's far more nuanced than that, and there's plenty of blame to go around all over the place. And so if you're in a dynamic, if you're in a hierarchical dynamic where you're the leader, you should look to yourself. You should pull the log out of your own eye. And if you're in a hierarchical dynamic where you're the follower, you should look to yourself. Because the Bible says there's plenty of blame to go around, or as the song says, throw a rock up in the air and you'll hit someone guilty. Number four, fear always makes us a bad follower. Fear always makes us a bad follower. Just as an aside, because I know the ladies studied 1 Peter last year, it's interesting to see how 1 Peter 3, about feminine submission, links submission and overcoming fear. Fear always makes us a bad follower. Number four, remember the tragedy of the tenth. What's the tragedy of the tenth? Well, scholars have combed through, and I'm so thankful that God, these, are, these people are, you know, a good Bible scholar is a kind of mediator too because he's spending his life thinking about God and then figuring out how to communicate that to people like us. Scholars have gone in and measured, according to the word, the land that God had given them and then have gone and measured the land that was successfully occupied. So God promises some land, and then they go in and they say, okay, at various points in Israel's history, how much of that land have they actually occupied? At the peak, which was around the time of Solomon, the most land Israel has ever occupied out of all that God has promised is 10%. So I'm calling that the tragedy of the 10th. And what do I mean by that? What was the main reason why they failed to take more? Fear. And that's what I call the tragedy of the 10th. Do you want to know what fear is doing for you? Do you want to know what fear is doing to you? Fear is giving you a small, forcing you to have only a small portion of what God wants you to have of what he has given you in Christ Jesus. It's a tragedy of the 10th. At the end of the day, the most that ever happened because of their fear was they were able to take this much of all that God had given them. And so just conclude with asking, again, back to Jesus, how is fear keeping you from following our great, covenant head, our great mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king. How is fear keeping you from following Jesus, from submitting to him, from taking up your cross and following him? How is fear keeping you from inheriting all that Jesus has purchased for you? when he died on the hill. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus. I read the story of Moses and have a real affection for him and respect for him. He is twice the man I'll ever be. But Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're my head. That you have brought a new and better covenant that you have fulfilled by giving of yourself and dying for sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Who could ask for a better leader? I couldn't have imagined to ask for you. I couldn't have, I wouldn't have had categories to ask for what you are and who you are. And yet, Lord, one of the things revealed in my life, and I'm sure in the lives of my friends in this room here, is that you know, great leadership doesn't mean great followership all the time. And so we come to you and we want to say to you, you are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. And we also want to come and confess that many times and in many ways, we grumble against you. And we quarrel with you. And we pretend not to hear you. <laughs> or pretend that what you're saying is, uh, is too much, too far, too hard, too frightening. Well, Lord, you love us with an unfailing and steadfast love. And you have perfect wisdom as to how to walk with us. How to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. You have perfect wisdom how to pasture us into the promised land. And so, Lord, now we pivot to the one thing that is our one hope, and that is that you have died for sinners to save them, to make them pure, to put your law inside their hearts and to teach them and to train their hearts with grace, to strengthen their hearts with grace is what Hebrews says. And so we turn to your table, which you instituted as a covenantal sign, and we turn to that table and say, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of being followed. You are worthy of being our leader. And Lord, thank you for being full of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll read today from Matthew 26, where Jesus says, Now after eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. If you have made Jesus your, if you have gladly said, that's my mediator. That's my head. That's my covenant king. Would you come to this table and rejoice in who you have as your king, as your Lord, and as your savior?
Would you stand and sing with us? My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flows at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and
rejoice in that we are satisfied in you alone and we're grateful for that gift. And Lord, I pray that uh, even in the midst of temptation, when it's hard to keep our hearts and our mind, minds focused on you and your, your kindness and grace toward us, Lord, I pray that you would just meet us through your word and through prayer to help us see, continue to see you more fully, Lord. And we thank you that you do that as a kind gift toward us as our Lord and as our Savior, that you lead us perfectly, that as we wait with eager hearts to be with you in eternity, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. We've got some announcements this morning if you're a guest with us and uh, want to learn a little bit about Providence or you, even if you just have prayer requests that you'd like for us to be praying for, you can text the word GUEST to 33777. And if you'd like to worship continually this morning through uh, giving financially, you can do so by texting the number 913-320-0730 and the word GIVE. Or we've got a box in the back that you can do that. As far as what we got going on throughout the week, uh, we have our Monday nights, uh, pretty standard. If you're a young adult woman and want to keep reading through Ephesians, there's a dinner at 615 uh, at the Banning's household. If you need the address, let myself know or my wife or Mr. and Mrs. Banning. And then there's a men's pipe night at Chris's house at 7. Uh, both of those are in Lenexa. Tuesday night, the young adult men are together for Hebrews. And then at 7, p excuse me, 615, the young adult men uh, are together. And then at 7 p.m. Uh, is just a general women's study. Both groups are studying Hebrews. You can join us for that. Thursday is the spiritual depression study for the ladies. Is it meeting online and here, Angela? Online. So uh, get some info from Angela if you want to participate in that. And then this coming Sunday, as we are all eager uh, for anticipation, is our next potluck. It's been a hot minute. So uh, next uh, Sunday, if you're going to be here, feel free to bring a dish. Uh, we'll come together, have a potluck, and then do some cleaning uh, since we are entering into the uh, next academic year. And we've got a school that meets here. So we want to make sure everything looks nice for them as they come in. So I believe that's all we got as far as announcements. And I have our benediction this morning. Uh, and just thinking about the lordship of God in our lives is a really important facet of our daily walk uh, with him. And thinking about how uh, the Israelites, right, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And then when they were walking in the wilderness, they, they resented their freedom that they received by God rescuing them from Egypt. And they said it was better for us to be slaves because at least we were being fed um, in a specific way that they, their hearts uh, selfishly desired to be fed. But God was providing for them every need. Um, and, and I think often we're very similar. God provides us with all that we need, but we sometimes, for some reason in our sinful nature, resent the gifts that he gives us. But we get this encouragement from Paul in Romans chapter 6, and talking, he's using this analogy of being slaves to Christ, being slaves to righteousness as what gives us peace and it gives us joy because it's better than being slaves to sin. And so starting in verse 15 of chapter 6, Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm not speaking, excuse me, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
For just as you once presented your, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We can have peace and hope in the, in the grace of God that we get to serve him and he be our Lord. We're dismissed. Have a good week.